James chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the brother, lowly brother, glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Amen. Father God, we bow our hearts before your word, and we pray that you would enable us to understand it, and we pledge ourselves to live in terms of it. Father, I pray that you would help me to faithfully preach your word, and may that word be quickened to each one of our lives. Receive our worship as we listen to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we started to look at how to overcome temptation, and we were looking at the difference between desire and sin. It said desire gives birth to sin, but they are uh, distinct. And without desire, uh, Satan could not even tempt us. Uh, he could dangle that lure in front of us all that he wanted. If we didn't have any desire for it, it would not be a temptation. Uh, even Christ uh, had natural desires that Satan tried to, to get at. And here's the problem. It's part of our very makeup to have desires. I don't know. No human can get away from them. Jesus had desires like, like hunger, thirst, sleepiness, and yet he resisted Satan's temptation successfully because all of his desires were under the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are all directed in terms of the lordship of God. And so we spent most of our time looking at how temptation works in our lives and giving some hints as to how to, uh, to deal with that. Today I want to back up and we're going to start an overview of the whole chapter and showing uh, 18 steps that are involved in chapter 1 for maturing in our Christian life and overcoming temptation. Now we're only going to get to two of them today, but these are the most important two, and so I'm going to uh, really try to delve into them uh, a little bit more uh, deeply. And I cannot overstate the first point, point B, under Roman numeral uh, 3, uh, of developing a worldview. If we are to have the kind of joy that verse 2 talks about, we need to count something to be true, or some translate it to consider something to be true. What we consider in our minds affects our emotional outlook. Uh, the reason we can have joy uh, in verse 3 
is because we are knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. Again, your emotional outlook, including the inclination of your strong desires, is affected by what you think and specifically by the worldview. Now, we're going to be tracing through next week all kinds of different uh, aspects. And even today, I'm going to give you verse by verse through uh, this, uh, these, these first few verses that we read, hints at how our worldview affects us in terms of overcoming temptation. Now, some of you have probably never heard of the word worldview, and some of you have heard the word worldview over and over again, but you've never had it defined for you. So I want to spend at least a little bit of time delving into uh, what that means. And you should have two handouts. If you don't, uh, anybody not have a handout, uh, we can get one to you on the back table. Okay. Uh, I want you to look at the handout that gives definitions. Not the one that's the outline, but the one that gives definitions. We're not going to go through everything that's in there. It's for your, a little bit fuller for your own study. I want to make this as simple and clear as I possibly can. And so we're going to start with uh, Ed Murphy's definition, which is probably the simplest. He says a worldview is, quote, one's basic assumptions about reality. One's basic assumptions about reality. Now, sometimes we don't even know what our assumptions are. And so we need to fill out this definition a little bit. And the first definition on that page is by James Sire. He says, a worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or unconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. Let me give you an example of a, an unconscious assumption. Some of you um, notice that we have been raising our boys quite differently than we raise our girls. And you asked us about that. That seemed a little bit odd. And we explained to you the reason for this, for example, why um, we don't make Ruth pay for things. We pay for most of her stuff, whereas we make our boys pay for most of the older they get, pay for a lot more, creating independence. We gave some of the reasons for that. And after we explained some of these different biblical reasons, whether you agreed with us or disagreed with us, what had been probably an unconscious assumption on your part that you just raise all kids the same way now came to be a conscious thing, either consciously agreeing or consciously disagreeing with me. Now, our children were the same way. Uh, our boys just thought this was grossly unfair, you know, that we were treating them differently than we did the children. Why? Because they had somehow picked up an assumption that they ought to be treated even-handedly, you know, with the girls. After we explained to them some of the biblical worldview on that, it, it transformed their worldview thinking, and I think they really appreciate the reasons now. Okay, so that's one example of an unconscious assumption that affects the way in which uh, we live. Another example, this one's a hypothetical one. Three people are invited to listen to a preacher at Our Lady of the Hill Chapel, and uh, the pastor's name is Aaron Kalkowski. Now, just with that little bit of information that I've given to you, I can almost guarantee you that you have some assumptions. There may be some exceptions here, but you have some assumptions about what I've been talking about. First of all, you probably assume that this pastor is a male because, well, number one, you know, in our circles, pastors are always males. So that's the first thing that comes into our mind. Secondly, uh, in the Bible, the word Aaron uh, is a uh, a name for, uh, you know, a man. And so that was the first thought that came to your mind. Now, I know some Aaron's who are girls or ladies, uh, but even for me, it would, the first assumption would be, okay, this is a, a man. 
that is uh, preaching. Uh, another assumption that you might have is that this is a Roman Catholic church because so many Roman Catholic churches have the name Our Lady of something or other. Um, now, in this case, it is actually a female pastor. And so you've got these three guys that go into, I mean, three people, uh, that go into the, uh, the service. And when Aaron, or Pastor Kolkowski, comes onto the stage, the conservative's eyes get big, and all of a sudden, he's got a conflict that's going on within him. He had thought this was going to be a male preacher, and he's wondering, do I walk? Do I sit through this? And his worldview is causing him angst because he knows that the Bible says only men should be pastors, and he's not quite sure what to do. Now, the second person is a lady who's never read the Bible on what it says about these things, but she, too, has grown up in conservative circles, and she has angst, but she doesn't know because it's of the Bible. It's just something she's adopted, and it's just shocking to her that somebody is preaching that is a, a woman. The third person doesn't know what all the fuss is about. She's always assumed there's big, no big problem with this. She's been a Pentecostal all her life. She's seen women pastors all of her life, okay? And so here are different people who are approaching uh, that situation with totally different assumptions. And people don't always realize why they believe what they do. Example, two people can look at a Confederate flag that is flying outside of a house and come to totally different conclusions. The first person comes to the conclusion that this family has got to be, you know, a really racist, bigoted, rednecked, unintelligent person because that's the only things that he's ever seen associated with a Confederate flag in the news media, okay? The other person, he assumes, boy, this is a really intelligent person who understands the, 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 the issues that were involved in the second war for independence. <laughs> and he assumes this family is going to have gracious southern hospitality. Uh, this, is, this is going to be a home that has, uh, believes in small government, in free market economics. And both of them may be absolutely wrong. But why is it that they are both coming to quite different conclusions? It's because they are interpreting this event based on a whole bunch of past experiences that they have had. Okay, this is helping to factor into worldview. Worldview is glasses that we, that we look through. Okay, look at definition. <clears throat> Third definition down, it says, a worldview is a pair of glasses through which you look at life. And I think it's important to realize that our worldview is not just information that we have poured into our heads. It is also framed by the hurts we have experienced in the past, um, by pleasures that we have had, traumas we have experienced. So even emotional types of things can frame the way in which we, we interpret or we react uh, to the things that are around us. For example, a child who has grown up uh, being abused uh, during his early years, it's almost inevitable that that is going to affect the way that child views and reacts to other people when the child grows up. Now, that can be undone as the worldview has changed, but there's things that he has unconsciously or she has uh, been putting into her head. Now, if you look at the second side of the definitions page at the very bottom, the sentence numbered five, 
It says these assumptions are not limited to the cognitive, in other words, what we think. They also include the affective, how we feel, and the evaluative, how we judge. Okay, the word for count in verse 2, that's, that's a word that talks about our judgments that we make about, about life. Uh, the word for knowing in verse 3 deals with the cognitive. The word greetings, remember that's literally in the Greek, rejoice, very unusual word for greetings. That's dealing with the emotive part of us. And all three affect our worldview. I remember out in Ethiopia picking up a, a chameleon one time, and those are such cool creatures. I don't know if you've ever seen a chameleon. They look sort of like a lizard, but they move real slow, and they got kind of kind of baggy skin. And they adapt their color to whatever they're sitting on. So if they're in a green bush, they'll turn green. If they're in a speckled bush, they'll turn speckled. And it was kind of fun. You know, we'd play around with them. The first part of the, the chameleon would sit on your, on your hand and the tail and back legs were on the tree. And it would be green back there and shading into the color of your hand. I mean, it was just the coolest thing. So I had picked up one of these things and was fooling around with it. And the Ethiopians that I was with were absolutely terrified, as if I was going to be struck down dead. And I said, don't worry about it. This is a harmless little creature. They would not believe me. And I held the thing up to one of the guys just to show him it was harmless. This guy fell over backwards and was screaming and whimpering. And then he started tearing off. And I chased after him for a few feet. <laughs> and then I realized, you know, I, I better not do this because this guy was really honestly thought he was either going to die or he was going to become demon-possessed or something. Because in his superstitious worldview, anything that could not be explained like that had some demonic that was behind it, and it just terrified him, which illustrates another point of worldview, is that our worldview leads us to action, okay? Sometimes it can seem like a bizarre, irrational action, and yet it's perfectly consistent with that person's uh, worldview. <clears throat> For example, uh, here in Omaha, third-generation welfare recipients... Uh, that call me up uh, from time to time, uh, they may consider it absolutely irrational that you are sacrificing and scrimping and saving for the future and they don't understand why you're not spending money on TVs and conveniences and cars and other things when you have the money to be able to spend on those things. They don't understand that your worldview includes things like deferred gratification and saving up for uh, a heritage for our children. And there's a whole network of ideas that drives us to have a, an economics of the future rather than an economics of the present, which is what welfare recipients typically are, are driven by. And when we look at what they are doing with their money, we think they're irrational. When they look at what we are doing with our money, they think we are irrational, but both are consistent with their worldview. Can you see that? What you do drives you to specific kinds of action. Now look at definition number six. Definition number six, it says a worldview or vision of life is a framework or set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world and our calling and future in it. And let me just pause there for a moment and say that even your view of the future affects uh, your worldview and how you're going to act. If you think that the world is coming to an end in one week, it is going to radically affect what things you are willing to be involved in versus if you think the world's not going to end for another thousand years. In fact, uh, hypochondriacs who think that they're about to die any time 
uh, it affects the way they live, what choices they make, how they interact with their environment. So the future does very much, our view of the future defines our worldview. So that's why you cannot say about, oh, who cares, it's unimportant, pan-millennial, it'll all turn out in the end. No, your eschatology profoundly affects your worldview, your actions, your planning. Your, 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 your faith. And so it's very, very important. Anyway, going on in that uh, definition number six, this vision is a channel for the ultimate beliefs which give direction and meaning to life. It is the integrative framework by which order and disorder are judged, the standard by which reality is managed and pursued. It is the set of hinges on which all our everyday thinking and doing turns. For each adherent... A worldview gives reasons and impetus for deciding what is true and what really matters in our experience. In other words, a worldview functions both descriptively and normatively. A worldview is both a sketch of and a blueprint for reality. It both describes what we see and stipulates what we should see. I think that is a marvelous definition of worldview. It's a little bit more complex, but it, it really is wonderful. Now, everybody has a worldview. People might deny it. Oh, I don't have any worldview. They have a worldview. They would not be able to function for a day if they did not have a myriad of assumptions in their head as to how to react and interact with the world around them. Now, the problem is that the internal network of assumptions that we have is frequently an inconsistent jumble of things that we have accumulated haphazardly over life, right? We have... Um, you know, picked up some things from our training in our homes, uh, some of Grandma's sayings, a book we once read, maybe something we listened to on the news, a traumatic experience that makes us shy away from any similar kinds of experiences. And it's just haphazard. And because we've got such a haphazard uh, collection of assumptions within us, what ends up happening is that we begin to be double-minded like James talks about in verses 5 through 8 or chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. One minute we will choose to operate out of a biblical worldview and the next minute we're operating out of a humanistic worldview. And anybody who's looking on might say, well, that's weird. He's doing this, which is utterly inconsistent with this. But you see, we not only have inconsistencies on the surface level, we can adopt two entirely contradictory frameworks of thinking, two worldviews. That's possible for people to, to, to adopt two world uh, views. Uh, for example, we shake our heads at the Israelites in the Bible who followed Yahweh when it came to uh, a war, perhaps, and church, and who followed Baal when it came to farming. Utterly, utterly inconsistent. They didn't see that inconsistency, but it was utterly inconsistent. But you know, that's no different than Christians today who operate from biblical assumptions when it comes to Sunday, and they operate from humanistic assumptions when it comes Monday through Saturday. And why is it that we don't see? We can look at Israel and just shake our heads and roll our eyes, you know, but we can't see that the same contradictions are in our life. Well, the reason for that is because uh, we tend to... Not see our, we're blind to our inconsistencies, right? We believe that what we think is true or we wouldn't be thinking it, right? And so it's very hard for us to undo our worldview and what we need to be continually doing is challenging our assumptions that interpret the facts that are out there and constantly say, are the assumptions that I am holding to, are they biblical? I want to be thinking God's thoughts after him. I want to be able to have a consistent uh, biblical worldview.
Now, with that as a background, making sure we're not lazy with our minds, right? This is the, the point of, uh, of the, the, the worldview. With that as a background, I think you can see all kinds of things in this book that were designed by God to transform and change our worldview. All through the book, all through the book. And I list a few examples in your outline. Verse 1 presents James as being simply, quote, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the outline asks, am I a servant or am I the center of the universe? Now, those are two radically different worldview concepts. Am I a servant or am I the center of the universe? And the the answer that you live by, I'm not talking about the answer that's theoretically up here because worldview beliefs actually lead to action. Okay, they're core beliefs that drive your action. So the, the answer that you live by is going to affect you in terms of your relationships uh, to other people, your planning, your emotions, etc. It's not just the welfareese who call me up regularly who think that the world is there to serve them. I've met rich people who have exactly the same... Uh, viewpoint, and the reason they have that viewpoint, I don't think they consciously say, yes, I'm God, and this whole world here is here to serve me. I don't think they think that, but it's been drummed into them from the time that they were babies that everything is here to serve their beck and their call, and their cry, and their whim. It's been reinforced into them, and some of you are teaching your children a worldview that is in utter contradiction to verse 1. The reason I say that is because every time the, you know, the little child has any question, tugs on your leg, everything drops and you go to them. Any time that the child cries or is hungry, immediately your schedule revolves around them instead of the child revolving around your schedule. Obviously, we need to care for our children and whatnot. But this child is learning, huh, all I have to do is cry and I get my way. This world really does revolve around me. And that's what's being drilled into their consciousness from the time that they are infants. When they become toddlers, they're still not being taught to be servants. So by the time they're teenagers, and you're wishing that these teenagers would do something around the house, you're having a hard time with it. Why? Because servanthood is not part of their worldview. And it's your fault. You've been training them that you serve them, not they serve the world. Can you see that? It is, it, and it's so hard. Now, theoretically, they may have read the Bible and said, yes, I'm a servant. But it's not gripped them in the core of their being because their desires, their emotions, their will, all of those things, we're going to look at it point, point B, all of those things are wrapped into their worldview and drive them to be selfish in their orientation. Um, <clears throat> when our children started to be about uh, two, as soon as they could do much of anything at all, as soon as they could walk, we started to train them to serve. We would tell them, please bring the diaper over here. Or when the spoon fell off the high chair, you know, pick up the spoon for baby. And they would pick up the spoon. And anybody who was looking on might think, you know, Phil and Kathy, you're wasting a lot of time. You've spent five, ten minutes to get that child to bring a diaper over here. It would have taken you two seconds to go over and get the diaper. What are you doing? That's a waste of time. And our point is, no, we're looking to the long term. We're trying to invest in those kids a sense of servanthood that will last them throughout their lives. Can you see that? And, and so it is for us worthwhile. Now, we were not consistent, unfortunately, and I, I hope that our children will be much more consistent than we are in terms of instilling worldview concepts into, their, into our grandchildren, okay? 
But uh, the point is, many of us adults have many worldview issues that need to be changed if we are to mature. Let's look at another example. Verse 3 says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Those outward trials are producing something good in our lives, which means what? It means that those trials have a purpose. They have a meaning. Okay, there is a cosmic personalism of God's hand in every event. There is meaning in every event. There is order and there is arrangement. Okay, the second question under point A says, or ask, are the things that happen to me for my good or are they the result of chance chaos? Your answer to that question is going to make all the difference into the world as to whether you fall apart when God brings difficult providences into your life or whether you take those things in stride. It'll make all the difference in the world. And I, that was one of the most stabilizing things in my life when I came to a grip with the sovereignty of God over all of life. That stabilized me emotionally. It stabilized me in many, many other ways. Okay, let me explain the difference between a surface belief and a belief that grips you. James says that faith without works is dead. That means belief without works is dead. Faith and belief are the same word in the Greek. And so, if you claim that you believe in saving for retirement, but you haven't saved a dime over the last 10 years, I would say, nah. You have an opinion, but it's not a worldview belief. It's not a belief that's captured your heart. You may say that you believe in the providence of God and that all things work together for good to those who love God, but if you're always getting anxious and angry and upset and you're murmuring and you're grumbling, I say, uh-uh, that's not a worldview belief. It has not gripped your heart because if it has, it would have given you joy in the midst of those circumstances. Okay, that's the difference between a theory or an opinion and a, a worldview belief that really grips you and drives you in all three of the areas that point B. I should point out, point B and point A need each other. You cannot have them separated. That's why we're taking them together. And, you know, next week we're going to be going, you know, verse by verse, but this is a lot of background material to understand what it is that James is trying to do. Okay, let's give another illustration of worldview. The way many Christians act, you would think they believe God had shortchanged them and he hasn't given them enough for life and godliness. Yet verse 4 indicates that we can be complete, lacking nothing. Verse 5 describes God as a generous God and yet by our lack of faith to ask him and to receive from God, we are indicating our view of God is that, you know, he is stingy and uh, he's a cosmic killjoy. Again, your answers to these questions will make the difference between whether you have uh, you know, a real satisfaction with God or whether your view uh, of God is, is very frustrated. Next question asks, does my sense of well-being come only from accomplishments in this life or do I have an eternal perspective? Now, verses 9 through 11 makes clear that whether you are rich or whether you are poor, if your sense of satisfaction comes only for this life, you have missed the boat. But if you are driven by eternity, then it doesn't matter whether your wealth passes away or your poverty passes away. You're going to be focusing on things that last for all of eternity. Okay? And it needs to count for eternity. If that grips you, then you will be able to handle riches in a godly way. You will be able to handle poverty in a godly way. 
but it's a prerequisite to being able to do so. Last time we looked at the question of whether I'm a victim of my circumstances or whether I'm a culprit. Most psychology says you're a, you're a victim, right? Not a culprit. There are some psych- schools of psychology say you're a culprit. But the Bible says, hey, God has so controlled your circumstances that he guarantees there will always be a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Okay? That means it's your fault if you fall into sin. He's made the way of escape. Okay? Uh, Every time we read the Bible, what we need to do is we need to allow those statements to be challenging our presuppositions and systematically say, Lord, I want to think your thoughts after you. And every time I'm tempted to think like the world, I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to call God a liar and affirm the truthfulness of the scripture. Okay, let's go on to point number two, Uh, point number B, I should say, which says develop faith in all three of its dimensions, intellect, emotions, will. A lot of people think that belief is only or at least primarily an intellectual affair, that it's something that we do in our heads. But you know what? If you think about it, you can emotionally believe something different than your head. And, uh, you know, a child jumping off of, a, off of a, a platform into his dad's arms might be, ah, he knows his dad can catch him, but his emotions are believing something different. Okay, so there can be a conflict that is there. And a lot of times, because we think it's only an intellectual affair, I think we fail on the test of faith. James chapter 2, uh, James says that the demons believe right doctrines... They're not obeying those doctrines. And James' conclusion is not, ah, they have faith, but not obedience. His conclusion is because they don't have obedience, it's an evidence that they have a dead faith, a counterfeit faith, a sterile faith. That Now, we've already shown that it's possible for people to hold to contradictory viewpoints and to even have two frames of reference that vacillate like the double-minded person of verse 6. And so it's our works that show what worldview at any given moment we are operating from. It's our works that demonstrate whether our belief is strong enough to have captured our heart and something to act upon or if it's just merely an opinion. And uh, so on this point, what I'm wanting to do is I want to help you to to, uh, go from paralysis to power, okay? Developing faith in all three dimensions, going from doubt to faith, and confidence. Uh, one of my favorite stories on the subject of faith is the story of the tightrope uh, artist Bl- uh, Blondin. And uh, he did a fabulous uh, uh, display of his tightrope walking, whatever you call that, an art, I guess, over Niagara Falls. And he walked out over there on stilts. He did a somersault out over the falls. He uh, took a chair out there and balanced on two legs. Um, He took a stove out and cooked an omelet and ate it. And then as the finale for his act, he took a specially made wheelbarrow with the balance bar in his mouth and he wheelbarrowed that up to the crowd. And he asked the crowd if uh, they believed that he could take the wheelbarrow over. And yes, of course, they're all enthusiastic. Of course, he can take that over. And there was one uh, young man that was particularly enthusiastic. And he, he asked, Sonny, do you think I can take this wheelbarrow over? Yes, sir. You think I could take you over in the wheelbarrow? Yes, sir. And he said, good, hop in and I'll take you. 
And the kid's eyes got wide and he said, no way, <laughs> no sir. He did not think that he could um, get into that, into that wheelbarrow and go over. Now here was, here is a great illustration of the difference between the faith of demons and the faith that is a saving faith. The faith of demons is mere assent. Yes, of course, that's a true thing. And we many times take the aspect of assent and say, okay, I have faith, but we do not have an emotional commitment to the doctrine. We're not willing to get into the wheelbarrow and risk all, you know, by taking God at His word. That's what faith is, though. It grips our mind, it grips our will, it grips our emotions. It's believing with our whole heart. And so, if you look at uh, the footnote for this point, it's very bottom of the page. I, I want to read that as a whole. It says, this is believing with all your heart, Acts 8.37. Both faith and repentance are defined as involving the intellect, will, and emotions. Repentance involves the intellect in that we must agree with God's evaluation of our actions, Psalm 51, 1 through 3, Romans 3, 23. It involves the emotions producing sufficient power of sorrow to turn from the sin, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. Repentance also involves the will in that it is a forsaking of sin, Proverbs 28, 13, Isaiah 55, 7, Luke 19, 1 through 9. In the same way, faith requires understanding, Psalm 9.10, Romans 10.17, Hebrews 11.1, 1, etc. It also requires the will, since living faith always obeys, Hebrews chapter 11. By the way, that Hebrews passage is a fantastic passage for dealing with the obedience of faith. Almost every illustration of faith is either a commitment to do something or by faith he did something. Okay, it's a great, great passage on that. Anyway, going on in that footnote... James 2, 14 through 26, Galatians 5, 6. But faith involves the affections as well. Luke 8, 13, which says they received the word with joy. Okay? Philippians 1, 25, which speaks of the joy of faith. Hebrews 10, 22, which speaks of the full assurance of faith, which takes away a troubled conscience. Uh, Romans 15, 13, which speaks of joy and peace in believing. Now, skipping ahead two sentences, the bottom line is that the whole heart has neither repented nor believed if the mind, emotions, and will are not involved. Let me just stop there for a moment uh, and explain that you can find scriptures that show people to have one or more of those elements and yet not having true faith because they did not have all of the elements that were involved. And uh, one of the passages in there, uh, in fact, is, is an example. Luke eight thirteen speaks of people receiving the word with joy but falling away. Uh, James 2 speaks of demons believing that God exists, but hating Him. Peter obediently walks out on the water because Jesus calls him. He didn't dare get out until Jesus called him, you know, because it's presumption if we do not base it upon the Word of God or the promises of God. So he says, come out. He gets out. All three are actively involved, but at some point, the emotional side of faith begins to wane and he begins to sink. And so it really is important that all three of these be held together um, as, as a unit. <clears throat> and what we're going to be dealing with is how to develop, maintain faith in all three dimensions. Look at uh, point B. Point B. This is the second sentence. Since faith is the title deed of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen... 
This means that the intellect, emotions, and the will must be exercised in faith prior to seeing anything with the natural eye. In other words, prior to having any evidence that your mind, your will, your emotions can rest on. Going on, we must strongly affirm our beliefs, see point A, when everyone affirms the opposite, and we must stop making any affirmations that undermine the intellectual side of faith. Now, let me stop and explain something here. We've already seen that faith is an affirmation of something. And so, <clears throat> Revelation 12, verse 11 says that the saints, by faith, they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Their testimony, in, which was basing, basically an affirmation of the Scripture promises, their testimony overcame the devil. Uh, when Christ was tempted in the wilderness, Christ makes affirmations of Scripture to resist the devil. He stood on those affirmations. Now, what we do frequently is we do the very opposite. We make negative affirmations, or we'll make a statement of faith, and then immediately we'll start in our hearts or our, our emotions or in some way or another making all kinds of negative affirmations why we cannot do what God has just called us to do. And what we are doing is we are shooting faith out of the sky. Now, in terms of positive affirmations of Scripture, negative affirmations of doubt, let me clarify, I am not talking about the name-it-and-claim-it theology which says that our faith can create reality. Faith does not create a blessed thing, okay? What faith does is it lays claim to what God has said is reality, God's the one who creates reality, and it takes from the realm of the invisible, in other words, what's not yet there, we can't see it, and it brings it into historical manifestation. So anytime, for example, I, I need wisdom, we've already said last time, we can have absolute confidence that if we need wisdom, we ask and God will give it. And we showed how to ask in faith. We're going to reinforce that here. So I ask in faith, I go into the situation totally confident, and I have the faith. That's true faith, but... If I say, you know, if I affirm daily that I'm going to have a pink Cadillac, I'm going to get a pink Cadillac, you're not going to get a pink Cadillac unless somebody feels sorry for you, you know, and wants to pump up your faith. And it's presumption, actually, that he's pumping up, not faith. God has not promised to meet all of your comforts, all of your desires. But any time there is a promise or a command that you can bank on, you can claim it by absolute faith. Okay? So... Um, oh, yeah, I was going to say, we're not talking about the, the positive affirmations, you know, of the name it, claim it type, nor are we talking about the positive thinking found in many multi-level marketing schemes where people are told that if they believe that they are capable of reaching that, just tell yourself every day you're capable of reaching that, that eventually you will. Well, not everybody is capable. Nor are we talking about the self-esteem movement that refuses to see the reality of how bad we are in ourselves. Okay? Uh, self-esteem counselors tell their patients daily, make these affirmations. I am good. I am a worthwhile human being. I am okay. You're okay. I am lovable, and other nonsense like that. And what I'm saying is faith does not, is not driven by, well, 
Um, faith does not ignore the miserable reality of what we are inside or the miserable reality that's out there, but it's not driven by what we are and it's not driven by the reality out there either. What it is, it is driven by the promises of a God who cannot lie. It's driven by the fact we've got a bank account in Christ Jesus in heaven where we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing and all that faith has to do is take and to receive. We are driven by the power of His presence with us. Can you see there's a radical difference between those two concepts, even though they use the same language. And so Romans 10, verse 16, talks about verbally affirming with the word of our testimony certain things. I'm going to give you several examples to fill this out so you can see this is a biblical concept. Romans 10, 6. But the righteousness of faith uh, uh, speaks in this way. And then he quotes the Old Testament. Do not say in your heart. And then he gives three negative affirmations he does not want them saying. He says, don't say that. Don't say that. That's going to be shooting down your faith. Here's what faith says. Verse 8. What does it say? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's an affirmation of faith. I believe what God's Word has said, and I don't care how many people call it crazy. I'm not going to call it crazy or impossible. If God has said it, I'm going to bank on it, and I know I'm going to trust my salvation for all of eternity based on the Word of God. Okay? Let me give you another example. Genesis 17, Abraham is rebuked for responding to God with a negative affirmation. You know, God's told him again he's going to have a child. And how many years has he been telling him this? And it says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That negative affirmation was making Abraham's faith falter. The next chapter, Sarah has this, uh, a negative affirmation as well. Here's another example, Ecclesiastes 7.10. Do not say, why were the former days better than these, for you do not inquire wisely concerning this. He is saying, don't be always longing for the past, the good old days, because that's going to be killing the faith that is needed to change your situation now to make now a better day. Faith is going to say, I can do all things through Christ. Uh, faith is going to say, of the increase of His kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. I'm not going to be longing for the good old days. I'm going to be pressing forward to the high mark of the, the call. What is it? The upward high calling? You guys know it. So here's another one. Isaiah 8, verse 12. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. He is saying, you start mouthing the negativism of the world and it's going to kill your faith. He says, don't be mouthing their negativism. When you affirm the truth of what will be, because God has said it will be, it's going to lift up and encourage your faith. Ten of the twelve spies who went into the land of Canaan, what was it that killed everybody's faith and took them from enthusiasm to saying, ooh, we better not do this? It was negative affirmations that the ten spies gave. Now Joshua and Caleb, they tried to counter that and said, no, it is possible to take this land because God is with us. He has promised us. They were standing upon the word of a God who cannot lie. And there's so many examples of this in the Scripture. Let me give you one more. Jeremiah 1.7 But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Now, it didn't matter that Jeremiah was a youth. Okay? When he used his weakness as a declaration of why he couldn't do what God had called him to do, 
What he was doing is he was shooting down faith. Instead, he should have said, well, yes, <clears throat> I'm a youth, but my God's grace is made perfect in my strength. I will boast in strength. And any time Satan tempts you to think, I can't do it, you have to respond, no, I'm not going to call God a liar. I'm going to affirm the truth of Scripture where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, here are some of the typical uh, negative affirmations that are destructive to faith, that are just shooting faith out of the sky. I can't. How many times have you heard your kids say that, you know, when they're doing school? And you know that they can, but their negative affirmation is reinforcing negative thinking is killing any faith for them to even try. Don't allow those negative affirmations. I can't? No, that should not be part of your vocabulary. No one's ever done that before. You hear that in committees, right? That'll never work. Everyone's against me. Now, you might, you might have some basis for saying everybody's against you. But you know what? Instead of making that your affirmation, you need to make the affirmation, shut up flesh, I'm not even going to think about that because God's Word says in Romans, if God is for me, who can be against me? Can you see that? It's an affirmation of faith. Okay, here's another negative affirmation. When it rains, it pours. Now, that's a slander against God's good providence. And you know, all of Murphy's laws are a slander against God's good providence. Now, unfortunately, I keep finding myself saying some of those phrases because I still got inconsistencies in my worldview. And I, I think, what did I say that for? I mean, they just pop out, you know, because they're coming out of the recesses and you're in a situation where you would have said it before. And so you need to systematically re reverse that. So if it pops out of your mouth, say, no, that's wrong. <laughs> God's providence is good. And I'm not going to slander him with Murphy's Law. You know, Murphy's Laws, you read them. If you butter toast and you drop it on the ground, it's always going to go butter side down. You know, they've got all kinds of Murphy's Laws. Some of them humorous, but really they should not be humorous because God is good to us. Okay, here, here's another one. I've done everything that I could. I've tried that and it didn't work. I'm just one of those people who has to and then comes the excuse. That's impossible. We don't have the money to do that. So again, counter any negative affirmations with affirmations from the word of God. And In fact, I encourage you to say them out loud because it reinforces the emotional dimension of faith as well. Let's go on to the emotional dimension of faith. Continuing to read under point B, there will be times when we must strongly exercise the emotional dimension of faith and resist any emotional expressions that undermine faith, and I give the references there. <clears throat> Let's just amplify looking at verses 9 through 11. He says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, Okay, a lowly brother like that is going to have plenty to be pessimistic about and disheartened about and bummed out about. But he's, he's refusing to do that. He's looking at the... Lowered, and he has an equal status with the poor man in the church. And why should he glory in that? Because it has adjusted his worldview thinking to realize, you know what, the things that last, the things that are important are those that count for all of eternity, not the things that distinguish in the eyes of the world right now. And so he's benefiting hugely by that. <clears throat> um, and 
There are times when we need to count it all joy, verse 2. We need to glory, verse 9. We need to refuse to be sad, verse 12. When our flesh wants to do the exact opposite, our flesh wants to brood and feel sorry for ourselves, and you stomp your feet and say, no, I'm not going to keep on thinking like this. I'm going to think about the positive things that God has placed in my life. And we uh, sometimes uh, need to just very get... Get in your face with yourself. Shake yourself by the neck like, like David did, you know, in some of those psalms. Why are you so don't cast to my soul? I will yet hope in God. I'm not going to talk like this. And when you say it out loud, and you say it with a loudness and a vehemence, it captures your emotions, and it forces your emotions to align in faith with what your declarations of assent are as well. Expectation can do the same thing. When I've gotten into a car accident gotten a flat tire or something like that, the first tendency, at least it used to be, it doesn't seem to be anymore, but the first tendency is to get disheartened or to get upset because you're going to be late for an appointment or whatever. But I refuse to do that. I immediately thank God that all things are working together for my good and I needed this tire flat right now. And I just start thanking God for the Christmas present that he has given. And even though I don't know what's inside the present, I don't have the foggiest idea what's good about this. I'm looking forward to unraveling that present in the future and seeing what's inside of it. But again, um, it's trying to align your emotions and refusing to let them give in. And by the way, this is one of the things that made Luther so great in faith. Luther would stomp back and forth, you know, because his emotions were telling him to give up and he was refusing and he would make these declarations of faith out loud because he was trying to align his emotions with his will and with his mind, I should say. And uh, he would tell Melanchthon, you know, when they're about ready to give up, look like the whole world was against them. Come, Melanchthon, let us sing Psalm 46. And they would make the affirmations of Psalm 46 that even if the mountains are cast into the midst of the sea and everything's turning upside down, we will not fear because God is with us. Okay? So that's what faith is about. That's what faith is about. Point B talks about the last step. There will be times when we must step out in the obedience of faith the will component of faith, even when the world thinks we are nuts. Okay? And the world will think you're nuts when you are exercising patience in the kind of circumstances, verse 4, and what they were experiencing in this book. Uh, they will think you are nuts when you're boldly tackling a problem you're responsible for. That needs to be one you're responsible for. And you lack wisdom. But you've prayed. You know God's going to give it to you. Verse 5. Now, we've already dealt with the obedience of, of faith, stepping out in faith, so I'm going to hasten on. Point B says, faith is never passive. See Hebrews 11. We must actively stir up our minds, will, and emotions to serve God. If any one of those three components is missing, we lose faith and become double-minded. The reason we see so little change is that instead of being adventurous, we try to stay in our physical and emotional and intellectual comfort zones. As a quote from Edmiston. And then I say the rest of James fills out this part of the equation. Now, we're going to end there uh, today, but I really do encourage you guys to systematically start working on gaining a worldview that glorifies Him and that you begin thinking about how to develop your faith. You know, you probably have thought about it in the mental sphere, but how to develop in terms of the actions you take and the emotions that uh, are generated. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, we thank You for Your Word, and I pray as we go through the remainder of James, that you would just open up the 
eyes of our understanding to understand. And I pray, Father, that, that this, your people, would be encouraged. And as they, by faith, lay claim to the promises that, that uh, you have given in the Scripture, as they lay claim to the blessings you have blessed us with in the throne of Christ, as they uh, see themselves as those with authority, feed, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that there would be awesome changes and differences that they would see in their families. To you be all the glory and the honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.